Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1957 Akira Kurosawa film Throne of Blood. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store. Barrett, how you doing? I'm doing great, Sam. Uh, Barrett, this was our second Kurosawa film. I think this is the third or fourth of his movies that I've seen. Um, so I'm always excited when we get to talk about uh, talk about one of uh, one of his movies. Um, so. Let's just jump right in uh, with our typical starting question. What is your history with this particular film from Kurosawa? Yeah, I think um, I think I probably saw this film on video probably about twenty years ago. Um, it would have been part of uh, researching my Shakespeare and film class, or I may have used it when just it, when I was just teaching my straight Shakespeare class. I don't I don't remember, but uh, it certainly would have been something I saw on video, um, maybe DVD, like in the early two thousands. Um, another question I have for you to kind of set the stage here, and I, I you know, this is our third Shakespeare film, uh, Shakespeare related film, and I realized I was thinking of questions. I don't think I've ever asked you this, but what is your origin story with Shakespeare? You're obviously, you've taught Shakespeare a lot. When did you first encounter Shakespeare? When did you first sort of fall in love with Shakespeare as a writer? You know, that's a really interesting question. Um, Sam, and, and I'm going to give you kind of a surprising answer. And it really was, when I started teaching at Bethel. Um, you know, I, I did some Shakespeare in high school and, you know, I liked him well enough. Um, I did a Shakespeare course as an undergrad and it was okay. Um, and then in graduate school, I actually was a teaching assistant for a course called uh, Shakespeare in Politics. But I never took a grad level Shakespeare course. Um, and then I got to Bethel and uh, in the English department, uh, as in many English departments, um, one kind of teaches a wide variety of courses. You know, you're sort of a generalist. The one course I was able to teach every year was Shakespeare. And I would say that was when I really began to fall in love with Shakespeare, when I, when I actually started teaching him every, every year uh, and did every year for all, all the years that I was in the English department. Um, and I think part of that was I became much more interested in Shakespeare as uh, in performance than I did in simply Shakespeare as, as a text. And the, the foundation for that was kind of late in my undergraduate years, because even though that was 1978 that I would have taken a Shakespeare course as an undergraduate, and it was pretty much a straight lecture course that preceded the BBC uh, Shakespeare plays. And so I can't remember ever watching a Shakespeare play when I was an undergraduate, but the lecturer, and it was lecture, he just lectured at us. But the lecturer always talked about Shakespeare plays that he had seen, and he always talked about the performance element. So I think that probably laid the foundation for my interest in performance. And then the interest in performance on stage kind of bleeded into an interest of performance uh, on film. And so I, whenever I taught Shakespeare, even before I created the Shakespeare in Film course, there was always a large element of watching Shakespeare, not just in filmed theater productions, but in cinematic adaptations. That's interesting. My first experience with Shakespeare, I went to I grew, uh, went to Catholic school, um, and I had a, a, a nun, Sister Julie, who was one of my English teachers, but was also my art teacher and my religion teacher. Because again, small school, just like Bethel, you end up doing everything. Um, and uh, so I think it was seventh or eighth grade. We read Romeo and Juliet, and then we read Macbeth in high school. And I will say, I probably. I'm of the last generation where our teachers made us do a lot of memorization. So we were asked to memorize 
um, chunks of Shakespeare. So I remember having to memorize the prologue to Romeo and Juliet as a seventh or eighth grader and just feeling at the time, like, I'm not sure why we're doing this. Um, but I will say that has that practice really opened up Shakespeare for me. The idea of taking a speech and learning it oh, and, and reciting it over and over to prepare to do this in class, not even as a performance, but just as a did you memorize it? I realized in doing that, that that's how I learned what the language means. I mean, if you, if you take uh, the to be or not to be speech, which on its face, it's pretty clear what that's about. But if you read that over and over and over again, eventually you start to realize, oh, there's actually lots of interesting questions in this, mm. you know, or, or this question is bigger than what it is on its face. Um, so for me, that was um, something that I just started to do on my own throughout later high school and college as I would encounter, especially Shakespeare, I would find great speeches and I would go on walks and just with a printout of the speech and I would just work on memorizing it. And I realized how much that opened the language up for me. So I say that to say this film we watched today is a Shakespeare adaptation. Um, and one of the things it does in adapting it is it sort of foregoes almost all of the dialogue, almost all mm. of the dialogue and language, um, which leads me to a question about, uh, about Shakespeare. And it, this is not, um, you know, I'm not going to ask the question, is this Shakespeare? Because I think your answer is, well, this is a collaboration between Shakespeare and Kurosawa, right? Right. Okay, so I'm not even going to ask that question because I've, I've learned that that's... And, and a cultural translation. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so my question is, what does it mean to adapt Shakespeare? I mean, you, you can do it with story, you can do it with language, you can do it with themes. Um, so as you think about adaptations of Shakespeare, what is the loosest adaptation you can think of where you'd still say, yeah, I still think that's an adaptation of Shakespeare? Well, that's a really good question to figure out, you know, what, what, are, what are the outer limits of what you can actually still continue to call Shakespeare? I guess one way to think about it, uh, Sam, would be to think about, could this particular work exist if Shakespeare did not exist? So to me, that would probably define the outer limits. There's actually a gangster film, which I have never seen, but I only know by, re by reputation, called Joe Macbeth uh, from, the, from the 40s. And I would imagine, without even having seen it, what little I know about it, I would imagine that's probably your outer limit. That's, here's a guy named Macbeth, sort of based on the character of Macbeth. Um, so to me, if Shakespeare is somehow the origin story, I mean, you could do a Macbeth that, simply goes around Shakespeare and goes directly back to Holland Shutt's Chronicles and just base it on that. You could do that and it wouldn't be a Shakespearean adaptation. But anytime you bring in the characters or even the version of the vision of the character or the arc of the character, um, then I think you've got a Shakespearean adaptation no matter how loose. Well, let's dive into this film, and I, I'll just stay off the bat. I love this film. My daughter, my daughter really liked it. So as we we were talking this morning, because I'm always trying to pick her brain for like, okay, what should we talk about on the podcast? So I was asking her. Um, this is her third Kurosawa film, her fourth Japanese film from this era, because she watched Ugetsu with us. She's seen The Hidden Fortress. She's seen um, Rashomon, and I was like, so if you had to rank those, where would you put them? And I was interested to see like, is Throne of? I know she loved Rashomon. Is Throne of Blood? up with Rashomon or is it kind of in the mix with the others? And for her, it was a tough call between Throne of Blood and Rashomon in terms of what she liked better. So I was like, okay, well, that's it. That's interesting that she, uh, she really, uh, she really liked that. Um, and she has, I think had no sense of the story of Macbeth as far mm -hmm. as I know, maybe, mm -hmm. 
maybe she saw a Simpsons adaptation of it, <laughs> so she had a, a little rough outline, but but really really enjoyed the film. Um, as I was reading about this, one of the um, one of the core questions to me in a story like Macbeth, and then we'll translate this to this film, is sort of the question of when somebody gets this prophecy, like Macbeth, like Macbeth gets at the beginning of this film, like to what degree do they have control versus to what degree is, are they just this uh, object which is subject to this fate or things like that, right? Does, does Macbeth can he stop the prophecy from happening? Um, you know, cause that, that's one of the questions that that kind of Macbeth and his wife, uh, they sort of talk about a little bit too. When I read about this film, um, people talking about this film, a lot, a lot of it was sort of how this film strips away that question and that there's this sort of inevitability, um, uh, inevitability that, uh, I keep wanting to call him Macbeth, uh, that, uh, Washitsu, um, does, that, that he is sort of just subject to these forces that are happening. What's your sense of that with this film? Yeah, I think that's, you know, I said earlier, a cultural appropriation. I think that is part of what Kurosawa has done by putting it in, in, in a Buddhist rather than a Christian context. And one of the things that's interesting about this film, unlike Shakespeare's Macbeth, is there are no virtuous alternatives to Washizu. Uh, there's no sense that you know, he, the the Banquo character, you know, Miki, he's not particularly virtuous either. They both seem as though they are playing a kind of real politique game, and they're both going to simply follow what the the, uh, the prophecy says. So there's that element, and there's also the element, I think, of a Lady Asaji, who is much different from Lady Macbeth, and that she seems, uh, she's almost like an evil spirit herself. Uh, and in those uh, conversation she has with Macbeth or with Rashizu, uh, even if you feel like maybe he's look, he's facing a choice or looking at an alternative, she she closes him off in ways that make him. I mean, he's literally cornered by her verbally uh, and even to a certain extent physically. So I think there that I think that is one of the significant changes that um, Kurosawa has made. That this is really a world in which it seems as though human beings are almost puppets of forces beyond their control. And a lot of critics have said that in this sense, this film is kind of an odd, it's kind of an outlier at this part of, of, of Kurosawa's career, because it seems to look forward to much more despairing films like uh, Kagamusha and, and Ron, um, because it, it really seems as though there's no, there's no hope for these characters. There's no world beyond the world in which they exist. And that's one of the things that they uh, also happens within this film that, and again, I will say all of my Macbeth knowledge goes back to 11th grade. So forgive me if I'm putting things in Macbeth that aren't there or forget or forgetting things that are, but my memory is Macbeth has um, a little bit more hopeful ending, not for Macbeth, but for like order being restored. Mm -hmm. Right. And in this film, uh, I actually, I actually went back and wrote down the, the sort of opening and closing chorus, which one of the things I'm unsure about because I speak no Japanese um, is there. It, what the chorus says at the beginning, and the end is very, very similar, but mm -hmm. at least in the, the subtitles I had, it's not exactly the same. So I wasn't sure if it wouldn't make sense if it, they were saying the same thing and translated it differently at the beginning and the end, I don't think, mm -hmm. um, but I'm just going to, if it's okay, I just want to read what the opening and closing chorus is because it, um, 
it's it definitely sets the tone for thinking about leading into this film and walking away from this film. So the opening chorus says, uh, "Behold, within this place now desolate, stood once a mighty fortress, lived a proud warrior murdered by ambition, his spirit walking still, vain pride, then as now, will lead ambition to the kill." And then the closing chorus says, "Behold, now this desolate place." There once lived a proud warrior who was murdered by ambition. Still his spirit walks, his fame known, for what once was, so now still is true. Murderous ambition will pursue beyond the grave to give its due. Um, so as I went back and, and, and read those, I was thinking, you know, and, and, and you know, is this, are, is the chorus speaking specifically about Washisu? Is it speaking about human ambition broadly? Like, like is, is it about the people who came before Washizu and the people who come after him that this is just this cycle or is this speaking to a particular story? I, th- I think I think the I think it's a moral. I, I I think that at the beginning it's speaking particularly of Washizu, and I think at the end it's it is trying to draw a larger moral uh, about the nature of this world and the nature of ambition. I also think, though, um, Sam, that it's one of the places where there's a, to me, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a conflict between the the world, the the Buddhist worldview, and and the Shakespearean play because I'm not sure that what we've watched is really the same tale of ambition in Throne of Blood that it is in Macbeth, precisely because of that, um, because of the way in which Rashizu's will seems uh, so constrained. So the, the, moral, the moral feels a little forced for me in terms of a moral about ambition, because it really seems as though what I've watched is, uh, is a drama about fatedness. And you could say that fate works through his ambition. I mean, obviously, he does exhibit a certain amount of ambition, but it's more, I think, that he's driven by a, a fate over which he doesn't have full control. Do you think he thinks that? I realize we're getting into the head of characters now, but do you think he thinks he doesn't have control over that fate? I ask this because no. of this, because no, I, I, you know, I, I don't think he thinks that I, um, well, okay. It, it, I'm going to have kind of, I want to have it both ways, right? Because in a way he obviously thinks of himself as a free agent, but at the same time, he recognizes that part of his agency depends on the prophecy being on his side. So I think he lives with kind of a contradiction. Right. Uh, because, be, well, because, because I think like, um, part of the uh, he's sort of selective with the prophecies a little bit, right? Yeah. Part of the part of the thing is, well, Miki's son is also going to um, is going to rule the the forest castle, but then when he finds out his wife is pregnant, they they put into action things to make that part of the prophecy not come true. Even so, so it's like, so do you think you're do you think you have power over fate or not? Right. And, and that, by the way, is one to me of one of the most interesting um, and significant changes that um, Kurosawa makes to the to the original story. Um, the idea that Lady Asachi is pregnant. Um, in fact, it, it had been long enough since I had seen the film that I couldn't remember whether she was lying or not. Um, so when she says she's pregnant, I think, oh, this is just another way of manipulating Washizu. Uh, um, but it also, again, it, it, it kind of intensifies this notion that he, he really doesn't have any choice because once he hears about the fact that he himself will have an heir, then he thinks, well, 
but this is interesting. Now he's actually going to kind of try to go against the prophecy. So that gets back to your point. Does he think he has some agency? Well, he must, because otherwise he would say, well, I guess the, uh, you know, I just need to let the prophecy ride, but he doesn't. He tries to oppose it. Um, one thing that, and this is maybe, I mean, I only watched it once and, and I, I feel like I, I really liked this or, or I missed something, which is you never see a scene, I don't think, where they send someone else out to kill Miki and his son. Correct. You do not see that. Okay. Cause, cause I love that. I love it. Cause I was thinking like, well, are they going to do that? And then when the guy, when the guy after the banquet comes with presumably the head of, you know, and, and says the sun got away, you realize, oh, there's even darkness here. We didn't like, we didn't see the scene of them plotting that, but clearly either somebody took this upon themselves or one of the two of them sent someone out. Which is really, which is really interesting, because I I don't think that Kurosawa is depending on the the viewer's uh, familiarity with the play to know that this is what's done. And to, indeed, I think it's to leave the ambiguity you just alluded to, which was well, who whose idea was that? Was that Lady Asagi or was it Washizu? We just we just don't know. And it's also um, another one of those elements of how incredibly concise Kurosawa can be at times. It's like he just and and how he trusts the intelligence of the, of, of the of the audience. You're going to figure out that for some reason this guy was um, deputized to do this. I'm not going to waste time showing that. Which is something else I would say about this film. It's very compact, just a little over 90 minutes, uh, and he really has. Uh, it's really uh, without any extras. It's just really boiled down. Yeah, I will say that that was one of the things that 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 struck me about it was how much the movie flew by, you know, even compared to Hamlet, which last week, which I think was two hours, mm -hmm. just a little over two hours. Um, this felt like I just I couldn't believe what wow, we're already here. We're already here, even though it has long scenes mm -hmm. and it even has long very quiet scenes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel like like Kurosawa was perfectly happy to have you sit and look at Toshiro Mifune think about things and it's like that's gonna happen and that's okay but somehow it is both efficient and contemplative and that which is mm -hmm. kind of masterful i think yeah it's got those it's got those kind of characteristic uh kurosawa battle scenes he loves people on horses he loves action he loves a moving camera uh, but then you're right it's got these long long slow tableaus which are there for a couple of reasons and it's interesting because um if you think about Kurosawa's impact on uh, Western filmmaking, Hollywood filmmaking, it's all about the action stuff. Um, but it's not about those tableaus, those long, slow. I mean, maybe the closest act, uh, um, director influenced by Kurosawa reflects that is Scorsese, who's not afraid to slow things down um, from time to time. But otherwise, people like Lucas and Spielberg and Sam Peckinpah and Arthur Penn and Brian De Palma, uh, who've all been influenced by Kurosawa, they don't really have that side of his genius yeah and it it uh it actually points to uh, a little bit later i just want to get into favorite scenes because there's so much great in this but but i'm going to talk about one of them right now um which touches on both of those things simultaneously and it's the scene uh when they're at uh Wishizu's castle i forget what that one's the north castle right, mm -hmm. right. um and when when you see uh lady asagi um basically trying to convince him that he should basically reach for the throne. Right. Yeah. Um, and it, they're, they're inside 
but behind them is are are these exterior doors that are open and it's like this very in their very their conversation is quiet and controlled and the the interiors are sparse and controlled but then outside through these doors you see this horse running around so it's like there's all this action and, and it's kicking up all this dust so it's it almost looks like gauzy out there because of all this dust from the horse and then inside it's very crisp as well very controlled and you see you're seeing both this action and this um almost stillness in this conversation i loved that shot it was it was beautiful to look at. i went back and watched that scene a couple times just because i thought that was so cool the way he had all of that happening not only simultaneously but simultaneously in one shot and that's a great great scene for another reason too sam and that is um that horse is running around in circles and the film as you've already pointed out with the opening and closing the film is a circular construction there's lots of repetitions within the film it's almost it almost takes me back to exterminating angel of these things that kind of happen again again and again and of course when they first meet the the, the witch in the for in the in the forest she has a, a a spinning wheel that she's turning uh and even the fact that the spider's web is another image of circularity which is an image of entrapment and so there's a lot of circles going on in this film and so the scene you just alluded to you have the horse describing that circle, which is a reminder that Washizu is actually entrapped in a spider's web, even if he doesn't recognize it right now. Um, one of the other things about that, the scene with the uh, with the witch in the forest that one of the people I was reading pointed out, which I, I loved, is um, that spinning wheel is as two wheels that spin, right? Mm -hmm. And and they were talking about how the, how that looks like a movie projector, as yeah, well, yes. you know. And it's like because because that character is a character who is in some ways an observer rather than a participant, right? So thinking about like us as the viewer of this, um, and I I because I, I remember looking at that thinking, oh, it's interesting that there are these two wheels here spinning as well. Um, you you mentioned at the very beginning that this is also this is a a. a translation of Shakespeare to a different cultural context. Um, so I don't think there's an article written about this that doesn't talk about no theater. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought maybe I, I'm not super familiar with it other than what I've read in these um, in these articles, but uh, it's very interesting to think about uh, not only a translation to film, but a translation from one particular dramatic style to another um in terms of how to present uh how to present this play how familiar are you with no theater or at least no theater elements in this film yeah that's uh, i would say I'm, I'm familiar with what the no theater elements are i've never seen a no production uh or or I'm, so i'm not really familiar with with specific no plays but in terms of the no element of this of this um film that's that's another that's kind of the stillness part right that's uh and, and there's a number of things and it's also the acting style so some of the no elements would be the use of the chorus. So we have the literal chorus at the beginning and the end, but with each section of the film, and the film does break down into four acts, with, with, each, with each of those acts, you have other choruses, right? You have soldiers uh, in each of the castles functioning as a kind of chorus. So that kind of choric element is very no. Um, the music elements, the use of the flute and the drum, uh, that's no. Uh, the very bare, literal, literal, the rooms that are very bare reflect the no stage. The no stage was a very bare stage and maybe you would have like a painted tree in the background or whatever. So even though this is a film where obviously you can afford to have ample sets, 
uh, Kurosawa ops for a very deliberate uh, no setting. Um, and then maybe most significantly all of, of all in terms of the acting style, uh, the no uh, the no performances are highly stylized and they are there are masks which are certain character types. And so when Kurosawa directed the actors, he would tell them, this is the mask on which you need to base your performance. And so that one scene, for example, when um, Mifune takes the spear to kill uh, Suzuki, it's one of the few close-ups in the film, uh, right? You'll notice this film is largely shot at the middle distance or even a lot telephoto lenses. But that's one of the few close-ups of Mifune's face. And the face that he makes is the mask, it's called the Haida mask of the Grand Warrior. Um, and so that's one of the ways, so No, no is a drama, like, like in many sense classic Greek drama, that kind of works a character from the outside in rather than the inside out. So you're told this is the, the archetype, this is the type of character it is, and now this person is going to behave in accordance with that, with that type. So a lot, of the, a lot of the style of the acting is not only different from Western style because it's Japanese, but specifically different because it's no. And you, should, you, you know in particular how the actress, um, who is a very great Japanese actress, the actress playing Lady Asagi, how little she moves. Um, and even when she does move, there's a very no style of walking that she adopts uh, as well. I believe uh, Kurosawa told her uh, about about how to act in this film. You are a no mask. Don't blink. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly yes. right. Yes. And it just, just adds to the creepiness of her performance. Yeah. Yeah. I um, one of the, I'm going to just ask you, I'm not going to pretend to remember this from, from the play Macbeth, but thinking about choruses in the film, um, one of the ones that's very interesting and what I can't remember is, I don't think this is in Macbeth. Uh, at the banquet, you have the the sort of play or dance going on that is also kind of telling the story. I mean, much like the mousetrap in, in Hamlet, right? That is kind of telling the story and then he interrupts it. Is that is that Shakespeare or not? No, no, you're exactly right, Sam. That That's not Shakespeare. And you're also exactly right that what he's done is he's interpolated a kind of mousetrap sort of, uh, and that's because, that's you know, again, Kurosawa is a big, Shakespeare fan. He does a different film based on Hamlet, so he knew exactly what he was doing there. It's uh, to me, it's a, it's really genius. Now, when this movie came out, uh, there was a lot of um, kind of mixed reviews, and and mm. a lot of sort of um, uh, people sort of thinking, oh, this is it's it's sort of kind of interesting what he's doing here, but it's not great. And but over time, or, or it's almost like dismissive. Like it's it's sort of cute that he did this like Japanese Macbeth, but not but didn't didn't seem to think much of it. Um, but over time, this is you know when I read stuff written now, this is pointed to as like well, this is actually maybe the best Macbeth, and maybe this is one of the best Shakespeare films. Mm -hmm. um, so what changed over time? I think probably. Um... A greater sensitivity to or awareness of con uh, culture, Japanese cultural conventions in a way that, um, you know, if you think, if you think about Rashomon, right, um, there's obviously Japanese elements to Rashomon, but what made Rashomon a big hit was this whole notion of what then became called the Rashomon effect. So there was a sense in which Rashomon was successful. I mean, it certainly opened up the world to Japanese cinema, but it didn't necessarily introduce um, alien Japanese elements. You know, for example, the samurai, that's easy for the West to understand, right? The samurai, that, oh, that's the Japanese version of the Western. Uh, we kind of get that. 
But I think in this film with these no elements um, and these highly kind of stylized performances, uh, I think that the Western critics didn't quite know what to do with it. Um, maybe a good example of that would be, you know, the um, esteemed critic of the New York Times for a number of years was Bosley Crowther. Um, and Crowther just kind of didn't get the film. And uh, in fact, he thought that the end was, which is one of the greatest endings of any action, of any film I can think of, he thought it was kind of ridiculous and even, even a little silly. So I think there was a sense in which maybe it was partly the unfamiliarity that people had with some of the Japanese cultural elements. Um, and also there weren't many, there weren't many people adapting Shakespeare e even in English uh, on film in ways that didn't use the words of the, of, the, of the play. So that was another kind of maybe alienating element. Um, maybe we could just jump into, we have, uh, I just want to talk about favorite scenes in this movie because there, there are some great, uh, great moments. Um, and, and, and we've talked about some of these. Um, I love the way that after the chorus, I loved the opening of the film, which is almost like a, a bad news montage. Suzuki mm -hmm. is sitting, uh, sitting there and people keep coming in to say, this bad thing has happened and this fortress has fallen and this fortress is falling. And even though I knew the story, I was thinking, where's this headed? What is like, 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 is this what I think it is? And then all of a sudden you start to hear, uh, and it happens very rapidly. You start to hear the introduction of good news, the news of, of uh, Washizu and and Miki like starting to win victories, and you realize like what a great way to introduce these characters, right? Is like is is you feel like the world's collapsing. It's like oh, these people are the hope, right? That they're now starting to win this, and we hear about them before we before we encounter them. And I really I really loved that scene, and I loved even the way that that looked. Kind of you know, as they're sort of sit they're outside sitting up on this kind of elevated platform, and people keep riding in with news. Um, I, I love that that scene. That's one of the things that Lucas uh, loved about Kurosawa was the way Kurosawa would provide context, the way he would kind of set things up. Um, and of course, the other thing I have to say about that scene, um, Sam, is back to the idea of the circular construction of the film. That scene, of course, is then repeated at the end uh, when Washizu is defending the castle and bad news keeps keeps rolling in and there's no good news for him at the end of that. Um, and then, and then soon after that, once, um, once, uh, Washizu and, and Miki get to, uh, get to the, the castle, uh, if I could, if I could have one frame from this film, like blown up and framed to hang in my office, I love the shot of the two of them after the first mm. part of the prophecy has been revealed and they turn around and they start, they're walking away and the looks on their faces, they don't look at each other. There's the looks on their faces are like, is this happening? It's like, it's such, it's gr it's great facial nonverbal, like, because at that moment they seem like, like those are, that is the exact human response I would have, which is like, mm -hmm. I guess I'm excited about this, but now I need to reckon with everything else that I was told up until that moment. It's like, okay, this forest spirit says this. I don't know even how I feel about forest spirits, but now it's very clear <laughs> the story has begun. And I loved that shot. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great shot. And, you know, because they're samurai, they're under a certain amount of constraint not to show emotion anyway. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a double, uh, a double pressure they're under. Um, my absolute, and, and this is another, another different example of, Kurosawa taking his time in a movie that's so efficient is uh, the opening before before we get to the scene we I just talked about when they're in the forest 
and they're basically just in fog. All you see is fog, and you see the two of them on their horses, and they're they're in what we're told is this labyrinth forest, and they keep riding to the foreground and then riding into the fog <laughs> just to the point where you can almost not see them, but you they never quite get out of the picture, and then they ride back up, yeah. and, and you get this sense of them as totally lost. I found it like very a very funny scene just this like the sense of but but you also get the sense of they are so lost that it's not even the 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 classic oh we've seen this rock before it's like we're not even leaving this shot and they're still um they're still lost in it what and what i, I agree sam what i love about that scene is uh, and this is so true of so much of this film is that you could you could look at that and say well that's just you know that's symbolic that's true you could look at it and you could say it's all part of the plot because as you said, they can't f figure their way out or it's just darn interesting to look at. It's mm -hmm. just fun. It's just fun to watch them dematerialize and rematerialize. And I have no idea why Kurosawa settled on 12 times. Yeah. I mean, they, I, I, just, I just feel like you're right. I mean, he wanted, I think, to push it almost to the point of absurdity and, and to the point of back to this other thing we've been talking about really diminishing their agency. It's like they're trying to fight their way out of a web uh and they can't um and I, one of the other things that i, I read about i read a really interesting um uh more kind of academic piece by a woman named aaron suzuki um and she was talking about how because the frame of the shot doesn't doesn't change or the camera really doesn't move much like we are in this position of observer where we see that they're not going anywhere right so we're not one of them like we're watching them and in some sense watching their foolishness as they just again go in this circle but at the same time because we never lose sight of them we also get frustrated by the length of it so she says like at the same mm -hmm. time he makes us the observer and we know everything that that they don't know we're also in their seats because we become as frustrated as they do that they can't get anywhere and we can't get anywhere and it feels like in the best possible way is this story gonna stall out just here <laughs> is, is this the rest of the story so like like that, that that's such a such a great um such a great team i need to point out um my daughter's favorite moment i i think she it was nearly a jump scare for her um and it is it's actually it is a, a beautifully framed shot um, in the scene leading up to the murder, um, when Asaji and uh, Washizu are um, are talking, and before she's about to go drug the guards, there's a scene where uh, she walks into. There's a door. There's a doorway in the background. She walks in and fully disappears into the darkness, and then without any cuts, fully reappears mm -hmm. and. It sounds so simple, but like it is, it is a beautiful shot, and it is sort of again because she has this sort of ghostly um, image to her. Anyhow, it's there is something frightening about seeing her because she's also talking about plotting a murder. She leaves and she comes back in holding this this pot, and my daughter jumped at that mm -hmm. moment when she popped back in, and so I, I need to mention that as that was her her favorite moment in the film. That actually was one of mine as well, Sam. Um, that was that was one I was going to mention, and I think for the reason for the very reason you mentioned, which is that it's so it's so simple, and and yet it's so effective. 
um, just having a completely, and of course it's the, it's the literal reverse image of the galloping in the fog, right? Because here she is going into the dark and coming back out of the dark. And again, it's another one of those moments where it operates symbolically, you know, darkness and evil and all that, but it also is part of the plot. And it's also um, simply be beautiful to look at. So as I was thinking about this, um, as I was thinking about this, this movie, I was trying to kind of connect it to other things that we've seen, other things that we watched. Um, the first movie that jumped to mind uh, was Ugetsu, just because that is also, um, it's a ghost story. Mm -hmm. it's a, and it's a story of, you know, uh, it's a different version of a story of people with ambition and what ambition can lead people to. Now, it's not the same story, but um, but that that was something that that I thought of. And then I started to think about other movies, and I realized, well, there's actually lots of movies that sort of uh, that 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 I mean, it's a pretty common story. The person who is wrestling with a particular fate, and um, and that leads to their ambition, but also leads to their downfall. Um, so I, I thought I was thinking it it made me go back over the list of things we've seen and it, we we watched and it made me think of like I mean oddly like Agira the Wrath of God thinking mm -hmm. about this person mm -hmm. who um, usurps power in a kind of way a person who has this ambition and you know and it leads it's a it's a uh, uh, Agira has a different downfall than um, than Washizu but it made me think of that as well but then I realized like well actually I could probably just keep going through movies about um, about a, kind of a similar theme. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I'll throw two in, um, Tender Mercies um, and uh, Raging Bull, you know, both both of which are films about characters who seem trapped in certain patterns and they're trying to break out of them. And then, of course, that leads me to the most obvious choice, our first film, Groundhog's Day. Uh, Groundhog Day. And uh, so this is an example of, because you know, that, that's actually in many ways seen as a Buddhist influence film, a kind of film about karma. Uh, and yet Bill Murray's character breaks out of it in a way that uh, Washizu cannot. And in part because in Groundhog Day, of course, there's, as we talked about when we talked about the film, there's no causality. We don't know why this has happened, whereas we know exactly why this has happened in Washizu. Uh, one one last question, and then I'll, I'll turn things over to you. Um, and this is a Kurosawa question. Now, I know I've seen later films of his i've I, i've seen the movie dreams i've seen ron and i know those are films that are shot in color um i don't have a ton of memory of them because it was a very long time ago that i saw them uh this movie struck me how beautiful uh, maybe i'm just being convinced by orson wells how beautiful black and white is and i just feel like more movies should should use that not as a gimmick but just because the the, the image is so amazing to look at um how does kurosawa have you seen much of his work in color and does it translate well does he translate well as a filmmaker into color yeah yeah i've seen uh I, i've seen kagamusha i've seen uh, ron um maybe one other yeah it does i mean ron is gorgeous as you may may, may recall uh sam so i think i think it, he does translate well in in color but i also am really glad that throne of blood was not in color. I agree. Yes, I think it's a great, great use of black and white. And uh, I, I, I wish, I, and I'm glad to see that in, in recent years, some Hollywood filmmakers have gone back to using black and white. Although I prefer an actual black and white film stock rather than black and white, either color desaturated or digital black and white, because there's a texture to the to this black and white that you don't get otherwise. Yeah, I mean, even in this, they talked about the like the samurai armor. They intentionally because they were doing so much stuff with the fog, they intentionally like had that stuff more black. Like they, they thought about kind of how they, they decorated the set and how they, they costumed people to really enhance 
some of uh, some of that. So uh, two other small items uh, from this I, that I just remembered that I can't believe I haven't mentioned or, or you haven't mentioned yet um, that the set for this for the castle was built um, actually up in the mountains because the fog is all real fog. It's real fog. That's Mount Fuji. Yep. Yeah, so like, so he he made people wait until the fog was just right to, and there's a lot of fog in this movie, um, but apparently he built it there because it's like, he said not because he cared about the mountain, but because like the landscape was what he wanted, the fog was what he wanted, and he wanted it to look a particular way. So, um, and I and I think that does just make it makes this movie even more sort of uh, ghostly, <laughs> you know, having that the the thickness of in the way in the way he uses that fog as a character um throughout uh the other thing in terms of kurosawa naturalism a, a fact the fact that i'm sure you know um but blew me away has to do with with uh Washizu's death at the end mm-hmm. um that uh that those were i told my daughter this this morning like those are real archers shooting real arrows at at him <laughs> and um and mifune is using his gestures using his movements to tip off to the archers where he's going to be moving so they won't actually shoot him with an arrow. Um, but just the, how, how amazing it would have been to have been on set the day that they shot that and watch, watch uh, a team of expert archers shoot arrows at Tashiro Mifune would be, it must've been insane. Well, you know, Mifune was uh, congratulated on how well he acted terror in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? I was scared. But you know, Sam, the the, the the initial thing that I can't believe this, the initial thing that Kurosawa was gonna do was he was gonna get a bunch of the extras and see who seemed to be the better archers and then use them. And and he said, No, no, you're not. You're gonna go to the Takeda School of Archery, where they shoot arrows off of galloping horses. And those are the guys that you're going to get coming and shoot these arrows. And of course, you know he's got uh, padding on blocks of wood, whatever, under the armor. But the other, the other shot that I've, I've watched several times, and I've even heard an explanation of how they do it, and I still don't fully understand it. But when the arrow appears to go into his neck, mm-hmm. uh, that's just an amazing, an amazing shot because it other, doesn't cut away. No, no, it's it, that, and that's what I don't understand. I mean, I've heard an explanation of how they did it, but I still don't quite understand it. Uh, and I can't get it to play slow enough on my t- on my computer to be able to watch it. Um, but one of the things I would say is that because uh, there were times when Kurosawa used the telephoto lens, so the arrows weren't always as close to him as they looked. But still, you're right. I mean, Kurosawa, he just always went for authenticity. So, you know, for example, even, even in the scene when he's drinking sake with his generals, they... They had to make sure that the uh, porcelain was aged uh, and looked. Oh, and and if they're going to use wood to build a set, Kurosawa wants old wood. He doesn't want new wood. So when they, you know, they filmed partly in Mount Fuji, as you mentioned, they actually built that castle twice. Um, actually, the original design for the castle was a very tall castle, and Kurosawa said, "No, I want one that's low and squat." So they built a low and squat. It was more of a facade, like a, like a two-dimensional thing, and Kurosawa said, "No, that's no good." And they tore it down and built the full three-dimensional. And then, and then for the scenes that are shot back in the studio, uh, for example, some of the some of the forest scenes, you know, you're cutting from the actual forest back to the Tokyo studio. They had to bring in, uh, they had to haul in dirt uh, from Mount Fuji, so it all it all matched. I mean, he was just he was a stickler for that detail. The other thing about Kurosawa, characteristic of him, is he always shot with at least two cameras. So he always ha- he always had a lot of coverage, but at the same time, the argument is it made the actors maybe a little bit less self conscious 
Uh, so he would get really good, good options. Yeah, I, I will say that 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 uh, those attempts at realism show up on the screen, though. Like, like thinking about those arrows, I remember watching it, thinking. I mean, I I didn't know the death, the actual death shot was coming, but just watching, I I just remember thinking, man, this looks very real to me. And then to read later, like, oh, in fact, yeah, that's was pretty close to what it was. Was 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 pretty stunning. Uh, what else do you want to say about this movie? Well, I just want to say the the arrows. It's interesting because it's a it's a way in which uh, Lady Asagi was kind of a prof, uh, prophetic spirit herself because she talks to. Um, she tells Washizu at one point that enemy the arrows can come from in front and behind, uh, and so in a, in a sense that's kind of what happens to him. Well, I, I did want to point out because I alluded to this earlier, but I just wanted to say a little bit more about this that the the film kind of um, is divided into in four acts, and if you watch it again and you're more aware of this, the acts are are um, divided by uh, by black by long black fadeouts. So, and then within each act, the action tends to take place in a day, a night, and a day. Hmm. So, and then as I alluded to earlier, every act has a chorus at the beginning. It's either the chorus of the, of the, of the no chorus or it's the chorus of the soldiers. And the chorus of the soldiers, it's interesting, you first get officers talking, but then by the time you get to the last act, it's just common foot soldiers, which is another element of the way in which Rashizu is kind of slowly, slowly sinking. Uh, another stylistic characteristic of um, Kurosawa that tells you that less time has passed is, is the wipes. Uh, and of course, that is a, uh, an editing technique that Lucas loves and uses in Star Wars. He, he, uh, and it's very characteristic of, of Kurosawa. He just loves that. It's a very kind of old fashioned technique, but he just loves to wipe. But when you wipe, you know you're getting a shorter uh, temporal uh, framework. So this is a really, really tightly organized film with elements of both circularity and, 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 and repetition. Yeah, I, thinking of of again the efficiency of of like a line or two from from the chorus uh, when the, we first go to the the northern castle um, and you see some soldiers outside talking about how like nice and peaceful it is and how and it and you know and there is sort of this 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 sense of like I, you just want to say to them like I know where this is I mean again this is where one of those things where you're the viewer and you're not in it it's like. I know where this is headed. Enjoy the this is peaceful right now because that's not going to continue. Uh, and the other thing I want to just briefly touch on is, and we've already, I've already alluded to this, but kind of three ways I think in which uh, Kurosawa influenced Hollywood filmmaking. One is just the kinetic or the kinesthetic element of his films. That is that all the actions, often the kind of violent action, violent motion. When you think about some of the Hollywood blockbusters that, that were made even before Star Wars and Spielberg, like Arthur Penn's uh, Bonnie and Clyde and Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. In fact, Peckinpah explicitly, as most people know, modeled The Wild Bunch on Kurosawa, you know, and said if it hadn't been for Kurosawa, he would never have made, been able to make The Wild Bunch. But then the other thing you get, which is sort of in Bonnie and Clyde as well, and other Hollywood films, is you also get kind of an aestheticization of violence. 
uh, you know, the death in Bonnie and Clyde, uh, uh, in Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde is all this slow motion, which is another Kurosawa element. You get that lovely slow motion shot of the trees. That's a, that's a great scene we didn't talk about. I love that shot of those trees and a high angle telephoto lens and the trees waving in slow motion. That's not a violent moment, but it does show you the way in which Kurosawa does aestheticize uh, the action. So I think there's an aesthetic element to the death of Wushuzu by all the, all the arrows. And then that third thing I will allude to is various kinds of stylization, the slow motion, the montage editing, the telephoto lens, multi-camera filming. Um, he brings all of these things to uh, action films, which really hadn't been done uh, before. So he really makes a lot of the, the, those great Hollywood films possible. But again, as I said, often in Hollywood without the element of kind of um, stasis and tableau and reflection, you know, um, relief from the violence before you go back to it that kind of provides a moral framework. Fantastic. So um, we are taking the week off next week, or I should say I am taking the week off. So that means we are taking the week off uh, next week. So we will, our next episode won't be uh, until two weeks from, uh, from today. Um, but what do you have for us? Well, I'm going to wrap up, um, even though I, I could keep going for several more weeks, I'm going to wrap up Shakespeare for now with another cultural appropriation of Macbeth called Scotland PA uh, from, I think it was 2000 or 2001. So, uh, and this, this is a film that takes a more of a comical approach to Macbeth, uh, and it has a uh, one very significant co contemporary Hollywood actor we haven't seen in any, anything yet. So I think you'll enjoy it. Oh, I can't wait. I this I this is a movie that I have heard of only because I was this morning as I was preparing for this, I was trying to I was looking for um Macbeth adaptations. I was just doing Google searches and I saw that name come up and thought, "Huh, that's interesting. <laughs> I wonder what that is." So, I'm uh, I'm very excited to uh very excited to watch it. What was the name of that movie again? Scotland PA. Scotland PA. All right. Um uh, well, Barrett, this was this was really fun. I I loved this movie um i really i really have enjoyed everything i've seen from from kurosawa i would say if you're listening to this and you're like oh i'd like to watch something else from him in a little bit different vein a few weeks ago my daughter and i watched the hidden fortress which is probably most closely the uh, a source text for star wars um mm -hmm. and i about a part way through i wasn't sure how it was and then as i when i get by the time i got to the end i thought oh my goodness i can't believe how much i've heard people say it's basically star wars and it kind of is um star wars if you took out han solo and luke skywalker it's pretty much what it is it, and it's fantastic so um uh, if you're looking for more Kurosawa, I, I highly recommend that. Thank you so much for recommending this film, for having this conversation. Um, I think it's really valuable to talk with somebody who knows uh, who knows their Shakespeare well uh, as we're uh, as we're looking at a film like this. Um, as I said, we will be off next week, but we will be back in two weeks to talk about the film Scotland, PA, in the video store. Mm -hmm.